Inside the Adventure, episode number 75, with Dan Pearson. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. What's going on, guys, and welcome to another episode of Inside the Adventure. This is your host, Marshall Mosher, and today we're going to hear the story of Dan Pearson, the founder of Bolt Collective, a travel-loving community of incredible people all coming together to unlock otherwise impossible experiences through group economics. Things like a fleet of boats sailing through the fords of Norway, a horseback exhibition across Northwest Ireland, and a private island takeover on the coast of Honduras. Dan's adventures have taken him to over 50 countries, with stints living in Argentina, the Czech Republic, and Mexico, long bike rides across the United States and New Zealand, an ultimately ill-advised 500-mile walk across the island of Cuba, and many other incredible adventures. Dan's professional background is in the production of experiences for brands like Airbnb and the Rockefeller Foundation. He's also the creator of Subway Sets, a sold-out concert series bringing New York's best underground musicians up to rooftops above the city. And today, we hear the inside story of how Dan's experiences and travels inspired him to make his dreams into a reality and launch the Bolt Collective. You know, there was kind of a, a bit of a leap, probably, um, because neither of my parents were particularly outdoor minded. I can't remember either of them taking us camping or um, or even really on any kind of outdoor adventures at all. But um, I, I give a lot of uh, props to to my brothers and my sister, particularly my brother, John, um, who has uh, bicycled across the country when, you know, at age 19, um, he, he's bicycled the, the Continental Divide Trail from uh, all the way from the Mexican border up past the Canadian border, spending 10 days at a time without uh, without seeing electricity um, on a mountain bike. So that was really the inspiration for me um, at a relatively young age to kind of get out there and, and do it. And I started my own uh, my own path on adventure at at, um, at 18 and uh, have been really lucky to to see a lot of places and do a lot of things since then. So were, were both your parents pretty adventurous as well? Um, what did they do and, and where did, um, uh, kind of where did their mindset lie with that? Yeah, I think they were both in their own ways adventurous, um, perhaps from a, a different kind of standpoint than we'd normally think. My mom, uh, who's, um, always been such an inspiration to me. She's, uh, pretty much from age 15 raised me single handed, um, while at the same time, uh, serving as a probation officer in New York City and, um, helping folks who were totally found themselves on the wrong path, whether through drugs or, uh, or family issues or whatever else, um, in a lot of trouble. And she, uh, was always so invested in her work, um, to, to help turn those folks around. So I think that, really was uh, was an adventure in itself and something that I took a lot of inspiration from. Um, and then my dad, uh, he kind of walked his own path too. Um, and uh, yeah, but never really, never really spent um, so much time in the outdoors or anything that I could, I could really take uh, too much, um, too much guidance from. Well, it seems like 
you did some pretty incredible adventures at a pretty young age, um, kind of regardless of, of where that passion came from. You know, by the age of 19, you'd already hitchhike your way through Alaska and backpack the John Muir Trail. What were some of those early experiences like for you? And how do they define that passion for for you as you grew up to who you are today? Yeah, absolutely. I took uh, I took a semester off after high school, which was probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. Um, it started out, flew up to Alaska, uh, no real plan, um, pretty late in the season. I think it was end of September and dropped into Anchorage, um, knew that I wanted to get to Homer where uh, my oldest brother, um, John, was, uh, was, was doing some trail work. Um, but for about two weeks, I just kind of stuck my thumb out and um, and and found whatever kind of folks were willing to pick up a scraggly 18 year old kid who'd never really been out of uh, of New York State. Um, so met s- such a wide mix of people. Saw um, so much kind of outlandish, wild, epic scenery up there, uh, and things like getting into bar fights and uh, hiking on glaciers and kayaking, um, through, uh, through channels and really just, uh, just, just such an amazing experience. Um, basically straight from that, um, ended up, uh, in upstate New York, going to college in January and just in a total, um, kind of scenario where I just didn't really have, uh, like a support system and just wasn't ready for that, um, for, for that kind of step in my life. So, just totally depressed and aimless and um, really no idea what I wanted to do. And that led um, into the summer after that first semester. Uh, kind of strangely, one of the best things that <laughs> that ever happened to me was getting into a car crash. Um, this guy totally on, uh, you know, on his own, um, just destroyed the right side of my car. Uh, and his insurance company sent me a check for $4,500, which I still think is pretty amazing that, like, they don't pay the body shop. Uh, they actually just send you a check and like think that you're going to fix it on your own. Um, so what I decided to do is cash that check uh, and turn it into a summer of adventure. So that was I just turned 19 um, and I flew out west to, to hike the John Muir Trail through the Sierra Nevada uh, in California and got to the ranger station. Super excited, had all this new gear from REI that I was going to put to the test, had probably max like 10 days or maybe 15 days of, of, uh, of hiking or backpacking experience in my life. Um, and got into this ranger station. The guy's like, well, um, I don't know if you saw this, but, uh, this, the Sierra has gotten 200% of its annual snowpack this year. So, um, we'll give you the permit, but if you see any of the folks who are missing, like definitely tell them that their parents are pretty worried. Um, so, you know, I'd had these really grand ambitions that were suddenly put on hold and, um, that was a little bit of a test in itself, but, uh, ended up buying this, um, this Greyhound pass that allowed me to, uh, spend 30 days, or actually it was 45 days, um, of unlimited Greyhound travel. So took that up the West coast, um, into Oregon and then Washington and crossed the border, uh, into Canada, went out to Vancouver Island, hiked the West coast trail out there. Um, and then all the way across to Alberta and the Canadian Rockies and, um, backpacking trips, uh, outside of, of Jasper and Banff. Um, and then at the, towards the end of that summer, once the snow had actually had a chance to melt, um, which was really kind of, this, this was very formative for me. Uh, I made my way back to Yosemite and, uh, and kind of finished what I had started and, and was able to hike the, the John Muir trail, uh, which is about 230 miles from Yosemite Valley down to, uh, down to Mount Whitney and, and did that solo at, um, at 19, which was just, uh, uh I think, 
more than anything, gave me the confidence, um, having spent that much time alone and, and climbing about 30,000 feet over the course of two weeks um, and 230 miles to, to tackle other things uh, further down the road. With every adventure story, there's always something that inherently goes wrong. What were some of the hurdles that happened on some of those early trips and how did you get over those? Sure. Well, I think even just right after the JMT, kind of a life hurdle. Um, so I, I finished that in, in mid August and a couple of weeks later, I transferred down, uh, to go to school in, in New Orleans at Tulane University. And, um, it was August 27th, uh, 2005 that, um, I took off on a flight for New Orleans from New York City. And uh, I remember getting on the flight and, um, they were talking about this uh, tropical storm that probably was going to turn into, um, you know, into, into nothing major. And then, uh, by the time we'd landed in new Orleans, the, the captain got on the, the loudspeaker and he gave us this announcement about how it turned into a, a capital or a, a category four, uh, hurricane. And I was by myself. Um, I was still, I mean, I was, yeah, just turned 19 years old. Um, but I think having had that whole summer of adventure and of, uh, relying on myself and, and making sure that, um, whatever needed to, to get done, it was, it was on me and I was, I was going to have to figure it out. Um, that, that gave me the confidence to not totally freak out. I think I was probably at about 75% freak out, uh, cause all of the flights were, were sold out, all the bus tickets, all the trains. So I ended up, um, actually hitchhiking, um, up to Alabama and then, uh, and then, um, up to, uh, Indiana from there. Um, to spend a semester uh, at another college. So I think like I, I almost look at that whole one year period of my life as one big adventure. It was like uh, a semester off doing all these amazing things in Alaska and then um, a summer and of of uh, of more adventure. And then um, this kind of wild experience being a refugee within you know my own country and having to evacuate with like this super gnarly storm kind of you know, nipping at our heels. Um, uh, so yeah, so then, and then even then it was, it was three semesters within or three colleges rather within, um, three semesters. Uh, so just like that really, I think set me off on this very nomadic path that I've, I've continued to this day. What do you think some of those experiences early on taught you that you wouldn't have had otherwise if you'd gone more into the traditional college route of staying at the same school and, and not had that, uh, happen? I can talk to anybody. Um, I think that that's been kind of just, just forged into me. Like even just that new Orleans, uh, hurricane Katrina evacuation story. That was me going to, up to somebody on the street who is, um, with a fully loaded car that looked like it had just one spot in it. And, uh, basically just, just begging my way into, into their vehicle to, to dip out of, uh, of, of the evacuation. Um, so that's definitely been, been huge for me. I, I think if I'd had a more traditional path uh, and and just had stepped into the normal college um, atmosphere, uh, I, I probably wouldn't have that kind of um, that that mentality around just being outgoing and, and talking to folks. And it's been amazing how many things have happened and, and been a result of just never being afraid to to uh, ask forgiveness and uh, or ask yeah ask forgiveness in, instead of permission. So what were you studying at Tulane and what were your thoughts on the future of what you wanted to do career-wise? 
I really had no idea. Um, I was studying history mostly because I just found it to be really fascinating, um, but didn't kind of have any inkling of, of how that could translate into making money um, or any kind of career. Um, but was very lucky in my senior year to, uh, to find um, a bit of a passion for writing. Um, and that turned into uh, into a, a kind of very niche internet marketing agency um, that I launched in, my, in the last uh, few weeks of college. And um, but still really just looking at that as as a uh, as just like a, a stopgap in terms of, of um, what might come next. But um, ended up moving down to Argentina in the weeks after I graduated from college and uh, launching an Internet marketing agency there, um, finding folks who were had moved to Argentina uh, to teach English, uh, but weren't having much luck finding finding work. Um, so. Hiring those folks, working with American companies, um, and really over the course of about two years, uh, built that into uh, into something that could both sustain me and also give me the freedom to travel. And that was, I mean, really um, a, a, another pretty clutch uh, kind of spell in my life um, and was able to take time to backpack in, the, in Patagonia and do a four-month bicycle tour around New Zealand. Um, so I was really doing the, the kind of digital nomad thing that has come into vogue um, a, a bit before uh, before it really um, took off. And I, I, those are some of my fondest memories, really. Where did the idea for that come from? And how did you get the inspiration in that last semester of college to say, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out and do it and make this happen. I totally just stumbled into it. A friend mentioned this this uh, website that connected freelancers to folks looking for help on various projects. And um, and I just kind of took that and run with it and, and started getting these bigger and bigger projects. But the real, um, the real moment when I, when I kind of figured out something was there was, was moving to Argentina and, and seeing there were so many folks there, my age, like 22 year old college graduates from Yale and all of these other, you know, Ivy league and, and other institutions, um, great colleges that, uh, just had taken these TEFL courses um, to get their certifications to teach English, but just couldn't really, couldn't really find work. Um, so just realizing that there was a kind of a, a labor market there and that those folks were really excited to, um, you know, make 10 or $12 an hour and, and they could produce really, uh, really great content for, for us companies. So that was, uh, it was, that was really the shift that allowed it to, to turn into something um, that was, that was pretty substantial. So once that started doing really well, it could support you and your passion for travel. What was next? Um, what was the kind of the next jump into the things that you wanted to ultimately get out of that? And and then eventually, how did you end up working for Lyft in 2013? Sure. So, uh, I mean, that business, Tim Ferriss talks about the four-hour work week, which probably some folks out there listening will, will have heard of. Like, I think I'd gotten it down to about a two-hour work week. Um, and I was making more money then than I actually ever have since. Uh, so it was kind of that perfect combo of of financial security as well as uh, the freedom to pursue whatever I really whatever what I uh, I wanted to do as long as I had um, access to internet every, every couple of days. Um, so I rode that for a while. I think it was probably about two years across those different adventures that I'd mentioned. Um, but found myself in in 2011 really. Uh, kind of just bored with it. Um, I'd have, a, I'd had all these awesome adventures, um, and had, had the chance to live all over the world, but, 
um, was really looking for more, uh, for more, some, something more, some kind of, some kind of motivation or some kind of, uh, mission that I could latch onto. Um, so, uh, I'd, I'd come across this book. Um, this was probably summer of 2011. Um, that was, uh, all about collaborative consumption and the sharing economy before those things really had, um, had gotten, uh, a foothold, um, and found this venture capital firm in New York City that, uh, that was called the collaborative fund that invested specifically in those kinds of companies. So, um, I remember I was, I was in my grandpa's, uh, house in Florida, at 2 a.m. sitting in my boxers when I came across it for the first time. And I just sent this guy an email. I said, Hey, um, you know, this has been my experience over the past few years, scaling this internet marketing agency, uh, and just becoming absolutely obsessed and fascinated with this new idea that, we can use resources more effectively if, if we share them and if we use them in, in smarter ways. Um, and I said, you know, I'll come and work for free. Uh, and all you'll have to do is, is subsidize my um, train ticket to get back and forth to my mom's house. Um, and I think that kind of like little extra piece of, of, of comedic value resonated with him. And he got in touch and said, hey, uh, you know, we actually just just uh, filled kind of the position that you might have been interested in, but let's stay in touch. And um, I was living, uh, when I say living, I think I was pretty much just crashing on a buddy's couch, uh, in Denver at the time. Um, but kind of kept up with him. And a few months later, he invested in a company called Gettable out in, uh, San Francisco that did, um, they did like, peer, uh, like rental of, of products. Um, so they connected, uh, consumers with snowboard rental companies and party rental companies and power tool rental companies. Um, so that the idea that they would be kind of the Amazon, um, for rental. And, and if we could move from a consumption model to uh, a model where we shared those kinds of products, like the famous example now is, or has always been that you use a drill for, for eight minutes, the lifetime value of a drill is actually, is actually eight minutes. So it's just, is a much more effective use of that drill if we can, um, find ways to, to, to share it. So it was just really, really stoked on that. Uh, and talked to their CEO, the CEO of this company, Gettable, on uh, a Tuesday. Um, had another conversation with a team member on a Thursday, and by Saturday, I packed up my dog and my motorcycle and um, and all my stuff into the back of my pickup truck um, and was driving out to San Francisco to to start uh, an unpaid internship with them um, at age 25. So, how did that internship go, and what were some of the things that you learned through doing that experience? Yeah, I mean, I worked my ass off. Uh, we were working 70-hour weeks. Uh, we we did uh, an installation with the biggest bicycle rental companies in San Francisco. That's actually the, the most rented product in SF are those iconic bicycles that are going across the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, so there was a month-long period during the summer of 2012 that I spent literally every single day, 14 hours a day in bike shops trying to make this really awful software not crash with a hundred people in line that, you know, are on vacation and, um, and just want to get on a damn bike and, and ride across the golden gate. Um, so I think that was probably one of the most stressful, um, times in my life. And one of the times in my life that I really just buckled down and, and worked the hardest. Um, but the, the folks that were working there, they saw how hard I was working and how invested I was. And the founders of that company believed in me. And I went from an unpaid internship to, uh, 3000 bucks a month, which was like barely subsistence in San Francisco, um, to a full-time job, uh, in the course of about nine months. Um, and really, I think just, just proved myself, 
Um, and that was, yeah, that was the start and what led to um, other opportunities down the road. Um, like, for example, working at Lyft, getting hired in, in late 2013 and helping Lyft scale uh, from about six cities when I joined to about 60 cities a year later. And uh, yeah, that, that was definitely it was a formative experience. When you joined Lyft back in 2013, I, I'm pretty sure that was back in the early days, right? What was it like? joining a company like Lyft when it was still pretty small and helping it grow? Yeah, I, it was a rocket ship. I joined, I think I was employee 150. And by the time I left uh, about a year later, um, they were up to about 700 people. And um, I loved it. I mean, I love the folks that I worked with. I think still like Lyft, especially when you look at the competition, which will go unnamed, but everybody knows, knows who I'm talking about. Lyft just has a much more uh, just friendly, um, collaborative, uh, approach to, to solving problems. Um, and I really appreciated that while, while working there. And I had the opportunity to work with some great companies, uh, forming partnerships with Hawaiian airlines and, uh, and joie de vivre hotels. Um, but I just, I, I realized about eight months into it, I was like, wow, working at a technology in San Francisco just is not what I was put on this earth to do. Um, and I started taking half an hour long walks during the day. And then I started taking hour long walks during the day. And then I started taking two hour long walks during the day. And I was just like, man, I want to be outside all the time. Um, so, uh, August of 2014, I I put in uh, a couple weeks notice and, um, a couple weeks later I was, I was riding my bicycle from, uh, from Washington state down to, down to Florida. It it seems like at that time in your life you'd had so many amazing travel experiences up until that point, but but maybe working in San Francisco didn't give you the chance to to jump back into that lifestyle. What gave you the the courage to to leave an amazing job at a company that was growing super fast like Lyft and jump back into the lifestyle of some of those adventures that you were so passionate about um, back early on in in your career? That's a great question and one that I've asked myself uh, with with different answers at various points in the past four years. Um, at high points, I think the answer is very easy and it's that I, I have a hard time with structure. I have a hard time with rigidity and I, I think I just I appreciate working for myself and solving my own problems um, and, and having the freedom to do that uh, at low points. And there have been some very low points across businesses failing and uh, and really tough kind of economic times. And, and I think to myself, uh, man, I, I mean, I was just a couple months short of, of a pretty big paycheck if I'd let those stock options vest. And um, like you said, I mean, just being at a company that was growing that rapidly uh, and I, can, I you know, a, a moment of honesty, but I can remember being in um, in Dolores Park in San Francisco at kind of like a, a, a very low point, maybe two years after I'd quit Lyft. And I was even staying with some of my former colleagues and just seeing the success that they'd had. And I remember just literally being so upset with myself that I was like walking in Dolores Hel- uh, Park, just like slamming my fist against my head. I was so just disappointed in myself. Um, so it hasn't been an easy ride um, by any means, but uh, I think it was it was necessary. And like that was what gives me some kind of comfort in that decision across the good times and the bad times is realizing that uh, that I really had the perfect scenario at Lyft. I had a product that I was pretty excited about. Um, I had a great team that I was working with. I had a, a great kind of uh, life life balance um, in different ways, but still really understood that something fundamental was lacking um, and that that 
that kind of uh, lifestyle, it, it, it just, at the end of the day, it's, it's not for me. If you could have gone back and changed anything about that, would you have? Uh, now that Lyft just, just doubled their value in the past like two weeks, I probably would have stayed that extra couple of months and postponed <laughs> the, the, the bike trip only because those stock options are now worth a bunch of money. But I mean, I'm, you know, I've, I've had so many experiences since then and who knows what would have been different. And I think at this point I'm, I'm just, I'm just running with it. What do you do with that bike trip across America and what was the inspiration for that, uh, to begin with? Sure. So I think definitely, I mean, another shout out to my, my big bro, John, who's done several, uh, several pretty ambitious bike tours. Um, and I just, I, I remember thinking at the time I want to spend all of my time outside. Um, so I took this, this bike trip and I, I started up in Seattle and I said, if I, uh, if I still have money and I still have motivation, I'm going to go all the way to Florida and, uh, and I'm going to find a boat going from the keys down to Cuba. Cause that was someplace that I'd, I'd always wanted to explore. And, um, I had this epic 4,000 mile, uh, adventure at the end of the season, uh, that included, I mean, getting snowed off trail Ridge road in Rocky mountain national park and having to get a ride down from, uh, from a, a park ranger to, um, I mean, just, just so many kind of mini adventures across Idaho and Montana and, uh, and Wyoming and, uh, meeting so many different, different kinds of people. And just, you know, it's, it's a very, uh, humbling, awesome way to, to see new places, the bicycle, you're traveling at eight miles an hour. Um, and you're, you're just meeting so many people in kind of a different dynamic. Um, and then when I got to new Orleans, uh, I had a bit of a kind of spiritual experience, um, that really gave me the insight to understand that, I no longer felt safe on the bike, um, particularly in the Southeast, which is unfortunately outside of, I think, all of the major cities in the Southeast. And I mean, you live in Atlanta, so maybe you, you'd have more kind of insight into the cities. But I mean, folks were running me off the road. And uh, and I, I yeah, a series of events kind of led me to understand that um, that that bicycle trip was over. But uh, I'd started planning a canoe trip down the Mississippi River um, to just have some finality to it. Uh, and, um, some closure. Um, and I was about to set off on that canoe trip when, um, I, I was in the lobby, uh, of this hotel and I saw the announcement, um, of the kind of detente or the, uh, the reconciliation between the United States and Cuba that was brokered by, uh, by, by the Pope. Um, and, that morning, I printed out uh, a refundable plane ticket um, to London, went to the passport agency in New Orleans and uh, told a sob story about this girl that I'd met from England who, um, you know, I met her on Bourbon Street and I was I was chasing her back down to London. Um, and they uh, they were very, very kind in um, in expediting my passport, my passport. And uh, less than a week later, I, I landed in, in Havana to, to start another adventure. Wait, was, was that story true about, or was that something that you needed to get a faster passport? What was, what was that about? I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the fifth on, on whether that story is true or not. <laughs> well, but hey, basically works. I just, yeah, basically I just, I, I needed a reason for, for the expedited passport. And, and that was the first thing that, that came to mind. <laughs> hey, whatever, whatever works. That's awesome. So what was in Cuba? Uh, what was the motivation to go there and the experience you had? Yeah, I'd, I'd always, I'd always wanted to go. Um, it's always as a Spanish speaker and as someone who's been lucky to explore lots of different parts of, 
um, of Latin America, I'd always wanted to see Cuba. And um, it just seemed like uh, the natural kind of progression of, of that, um, that, that larger experience. So, uh, I had intended to just take my bicycle to Cuba, um, and realized logistically that was just going to be a nightmare. And I was really on this, this kick about slowing down, uh, slowing down mentally, spiritually. Um, and, and that manifested itself in slowing down, uh, physically to, uh, to walk across Cuba. Um, so I landed in Havana, uh, and spent a couple weeks introducing myself to that pretty magical city, which holds so many, um, comparisons and connections to, to New Orleans, which is another, um, place that, uh, that just is, is spiritually very powerful. Um, and yeah, and I started walking. How long did it take you to walk all the way across Cuba? And what was, one of the most impactful outcomes that that trip had on you. So I walked about 400 miles um, and ended up in a city called Cienfuegos. And along the way, uh, I met the most incredible people. The Cubans uh, are such a creative, genuine, intelligent, um, optimistic group of people. Um, And just, I mean, meeting farmers, um, meeting folks who had fought in Angola uh, in the in the seventies and eighties, um, and and had seen uh, just such such horrible things, um, fighting for for you know the liberation of, of people across the world, um, and still coming back to Cuba, which is a land you know that's definitely has its own challenges, um, particularly uh, I think out in some of the rural areas. Um, but they were just generally just such such amazing people. Um, so really, what I took away from that, uh, what was I, I would say two things. One is that walking across Cuba was as a mode of transportation was probably not the right call because there's just uh, there's 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 not much between uh, between cities except long tracts of of farmland. So I'd spend twenty or thirty miles a day just kind of seeing the exact same thing. But it also, of course, gave me gave me access to to meet um, a lot of different folks and then. Uh, the, the, the walk itself that ended in, um, outside of a city called Cienfuegos, I, uh, was following, um, the directions, uh, off this, this totally outdated map, um, and, uh, walked across this guy who, um, gave me some other directions. It seemed even, even less kind of, uh, less intelligent. Um, so walked in his directions for about with his directions for about half a mile, turned back, um, and crossed his farm again. And this time, uh, very unfortunately, he uh, was wearing his uniform from the um, the Cuban National Revolutionary Police. Uh, so, so he kind of linked me up, uh, or to, to say it uh, to say it gently, um, with his superior, uh, who then called his superior and called his superior, um, and they brought me back to the city of Cienfuegos. Uh, where I found myself sitting across from uh, the the head of the entire province's police, um, so like a very high government official, um, and they just couldn't understand why I possibly would have decided to to walk across the country. There's just no culture of adventure travel in in Cuba. Uh, I think folks are are focused on um, healthcare and education and uh, doing what they can for their families. So there's just no there 
there's no, really no rock climbing. There's no uh, surfing. There's no, they're, they're just starting to kind of bring those kind of more adventurous endeavors um, into the, the popular culture. Uh, so just asked me a ton of questions about whether I was carrying a GPS and if I'd ever been in the army and, uh, and what my parents did for work and why I was walking across their country and where I'd slept. And, um, they were super civil throughout it, really nice people. Um, but it was a, a bit of a kind of wake up call that, um, there's still for all of the reconciliation, there still was, uh, a, ch a challenge between the two countries and kind of a, a, a deep um, distrust between the two countries after 50 years of uh, geopolitical um, kind of kind of uh, difficulties. So um, after that, I just realized that that the walk had kind of served its purpose and um, and I was I was ready for for whatever would come next. So I, I think I'm a little confused with, and I'm sure you were as well, uh, with what they thought you were doing. If if they didn't think you were walking across the U.S. or sorry, walking across Cuba, did they think like you were a spy from the U.S. or or what was going through their mind as as well as you might have um, kind of uh, got from that experience? What did you think that they were thinking? I think they definitely started the conversation with no idea what I was doing and the, the potential for me to be some kind of, uh, agent with, um, with some kind of malintention or just a crazy person, uh, because literally it was so far outside of their realm of understanding why someone would, would want to do something like that instead of spend the same amount of money in five days in Havana, you know, partying and drinking rum and, uh, and hanging out with prostitutes kind of thing. Like they, th it was just so far outside of, of their, uh, their understanding. As I kind of explained more about this bicycle trip and the deep, uh, respect that I had for the Cuban people, um, I think it became much more, uh, kind of acceptable to them. But at the same time, they still have these laws. I mean, in Cuba, it's actually illegal, uh, to camp right? Like even locals aren't supposed to camp because there might be some potential danger to it. Um, and particularly foreigners who, uh, are supposed to record their whereabouts at all times. So if you sleep in a hotel, the hotel is giving that information on a daily basis to the government. If you sleep in, they're called casas particulares, which are like the version of, uh, of a B and B in Cuba. Um, every day, the owner of that, of that casa is, is going to, report that back to the government as well um wait so you can't you can't camp anywhere are there no even designated outdoor recreation campsites or or do you mean more of like you can't be hiking a trail and find a little uh field and say i'm gonna camp here i did not see one camp even campground the entire time i was in cuba wow that's amazing yeah yeah <laughs> everything i hear about cuba is that the potential for outdoor recreation there is so high, but it's been locked off to the U S and a lot of the world for so long that it hasn't really grown, but it seems like there's still a ton of restrictions in terms of utilizing that. And there was amazing natural resources that, that they have. So there are a ton of different opportunities in Cuba. There's Vindiales, which uh, has great rock climbing there. I mean, there are waves, um, off the coast. And it's pretty amazing. Like I, I read a story in the New York times uh, several years ago that talked about these Cubans that 
they shape surfboards out of the foam from refrigerators. And um, I think it's just that balance in Cuba between government control over folks' lives, which like can, of course, from a liberty, like a personal liberty standpoint, be really challenging because we all want to live freely and, and pursue our passions and the things that we want to do. But at the same time, the government takes uh, their, and this is of course my opinion, takes the perspective that uh, the the good of the many, I guess, outweighs the good of the few. And like, should resources go towards, uh, should medical resources go towards, um, you know, fixing up folks who have falled, who, who have fallen off off a rock face, or should they go towards uh, you know, m- making sure that all children are, uh, are, are vaccinated. And I mean, that's maybe a, a bit of a draconian kind of, uh, comparison, but, um, that was my impression was that like the, the, uh, those kinds of governmental regulations, um, and, and governmental perspectives were geared more towards making a lot happen with, uh, with fewer resources rather than, um, rather than any kind of like personal liberty restrictions. But what I tell people about Cuba now I'm several, several years removed from spending um, almost six months on the Island is that like you could spend your entire lifetime there and, and <laughs> still kind of go back and forth on, on, uh, on, on how life, life goes down there. So it sounds like throughout all these different experiences, you had some pretty incredible opportunities to travel across the world and do some amazing things. How did those experiences impact your decisions and desires for the future? So I was super lucky to have all of these these opportunities to have these different experiences all over the world. And um, at the same time, totally by happenstance and, and luck, uh, I had the opportunity to ask Bill Gates a question over Twitter as he was um, interviewed by Jack Dorsey. And I said, um, Bill, you know, with all of the resources at your disposal, where do you feel least able to affect change? Um, and I never thought he'd, he'd answer, uh, amongst the probably 10,000 other questions that he got, but I was at happy hour one, one afternoon. Um, and I just felt my phone start to buzz and vibrate and almost explode through my pocket. Um, and he'd answered and he said, you know, with the, the millions and billions of dollars that I have and all these employees working for me, um, the, the area that I have no control of whatsoever is, is time and making the most of, um, of time. And, He's like, I focus on my philanthropy and I focus on my family. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of how I, how I choose to make the most of, of that very finite resource. And, um, that quote from him and just the fact that I was able to somehow ask the man with, I think now he's probably second or third on the list of wealthiest people in the world, but pretty far up there, uh, in terms of, of money and, and, um, and, and I guess, uh, I guess resources and the fact that, that, he, uh, that, that was his answer has made me reframe the way that I think about a lot of things. And at this point now, I I think about going back to a more traditional, um, job with more security and and with more, uh, kind of restrictions around, um, around my, my personal time. Um, and it just wasn't there. So that kind of alongside these, these travel experiences set me off on this path of, uh, of thinking about what came next professionally and how I was going to, um, find the intersection of, of my professional um, capabilities and skills and experiences and, and my personal passion for um, for adventure and, and for travel. And um, it's been a long winding path to get there for the past few years, but uh, have 
um, recently, about a year ago, embarked on um, a new adventure that is the intersection of those things called uh, called Bolt Collective. So what inspired the first idea of Bolt Collective? And how did you take that initial passion to go out and, and do something in that field and create it into what is now Bolt Collective? So it's, it's really uh, thinking about things that I've done in the past, both like I said, professionally and in my last, um, my last full-time gig at Lyft, uh, working on travel partnerships for them. Um, so figuring out how to partner with airlines and hotels and other hospitality companies, um, to, to introduce Lyft to their customers. So that was like the, the kind of professional side of it. And then on the personal side, um, of course, all the adventures that, um, you know, we've, we've chatted about so far, but then, uh, other trips for family and friends that I've put together, whether that's New Year's 2016, getting a couple boats together and sailing uh, through the San Blas Islands in Panama or putting ski houses together in different places or uh, or um, houses in New Orleans for Mardi Gras and, and leveraging relationships there that were um, that allowed me to show a very different side of that city to, to friends and family. Um, so all of those things coming together made me realize that there was a bit of an opportunity in the market to uh, say, okay, like traditional group travel, super regimented, super scheduled, 8.30 a.m., everybody get on a bus kind of thing, um, which is personally, it's that's my worst nightmare. Um, and maybe, you know, almost I'm the worst person to start this business because I have zero experience in traditional group travel as a participant or uh, certainly working in that industry. But Thinking about that approach made me realize um, from a, just a personal standpoint of, of what I would want to see um, as, a, as a potential customer of, of, of a community driven travel experience is like the flipped 180 approach and saying, OK, instead of uh, a very, very regimented, um, very packed itinerary on a, on a day to day basis of, of some kind of travel group travel experience, flipping that and saying, OK, uh, you have your whole day to explore. There's some structure to it. Um, and every day there's uh, a totally authentic, unexpected, delightful, local join if you want to piece of programming. But it still leaves the day open for you to explore and, and have that serendipity and randomness that um, really is my favorite part of, of travel. So what, what kind of things have you guys coordinated and, and done through Bull Collective? And, and what kind of people are you really kind of catering towards helping? Sure. So I, I describe it as uh, a community um, of very diverse but like-minded folks coming together um, to unlock travel experiences. So um, great examples of that. Uh, the second trip we did down in the British Virgin Islands, renting um, a small flotilla of sailboats um, for an adventure through, uh, through the BVIs. Um, and I'm on the phone with these charter companies saying, Hey, we're bringing four boats worth of people down. We're looking for a 40% volume discount. Um, and that, uh, I think really shows the the power of like collective purchasing and, and bringing a group of committed people together to, um, to unlock a travel experience and take something that normally would be a few thousand dollars and drops. It's like 1500 bucks. That's, that's a good example. Um, New Year's, uh, this, let's see, this was New Year's of, of this past year. Uh, we were down in Oaxaca on our first trip, um, rented out this compound of treehouse villas, uh, right on the beach down on the coast of Oaxaca in a, um, a town that I'd lived in for six months in 2015 called Masunte, which is really just one of my favorite places in the world. And somewhere I, um, always tell people who are looking for, 
a bit of a more kind of adventurous uh, beach vacay. Um, every even the most the most intrepid intrepid explorers I think need need a beach vacay every once in a while. Um, it's just a, a really special part of the world. Uh, so we rented a compound of treehouse villas down there, and every day along the lines of what I mentioned, introducing something just awesome that folks could uh, could join. Folks that came down as part of our community could could join, um, but uh, still leaving the day open for them. So like. That could be chartering a boat um, and going whale watching and ending up on on a private beach to uh, a ceremony um, inside of a, a sweat lodge with a friend of mine that that runs this beautiful temescal, um, which is the uh, the style of sweat lodge that um, the Mixteca people that do down in um, that part of Mexico uh, to New Year's Eve on the beach, uh, New, Year's Eve, New Year's Eve dinner on the beach. Um, so really trying to like bring together diverse folks across age. Uh, and this gets back to your question about, um, about who has actually joined, joined the community. So uh, diverse across age, we have members who are 25 and we have members who are 60 uh, background. We have members who are social workers and teachers and then corporate lawyers and startup CEOs, um, people all across the country and starting to see people all across the world uh, express interest and join um, but everyone, I think, comes together around uh, common adjectives and, and what I think of there um, and the folks that hopefully we're doing a good job of attracting are people who are curious, adaptable, adventurous, um, just really nice people you'd want to sit next to on an airplane for six hours kind of thing. It's it's really cool how you're structuring it as more of a community than individual trips. What was the the thought process behind that, and how has that kind of community aspect really affected the relationships and the experiences overall that you've created? I think I realized pretty early on that curation was was an important part of of the community that we were trying to build. Um, and as diverse as as it is, and uh, and as wide and varied a, a group of people we brought together. It is important to keep like-minded ideals together. Um, so that required some kind of process uh, to both identify those people, attract those people, and then bring them through some kind of, uh, of curation to make sure that we, we ended up with, um, yeah, folks, you'd, the, the easiest way to put it is folks you'd want to sit next to on an airplane for six hours to, and, and folks you want to learn from, um, and you want to share new experiences with. So, um, pretty early on, I realized that rather than offering individual trips, it was important to get people bought into this idea of a community, um, of like-minded people. Um, so the, the process for, for joining as an example of how that actually takes shape is, um, there's an introductory call where, uh, where, the potential member gets on the phone with me and we chat and just give them an overview of what we're doing and answer any questions they might have. Um, and then there's actually a, a member interview where they talk to somebody who's already joined and already been on a trip and um, can kind of get a 360 degree fit of uh, whether it's a good idea for both um, the person who's thinking about joining as well as, as the community as a whole. So it's, it's not an exact science um, by any means, but uh, I think, it's somewhat self-selecting in the people that might be interested in joining something like this. And, and then we do have a bit of a process to try to um, make sure that people are, are joining for the right reasons, as well as like a code of conduct um, that's rooted in common sense, but also just core principles around respect and, and treating other people uh, the way that, that you'd want to be treated. What are some of the goals and, and the main vision that you have for the future of Bolt Collective? Uh, if you could kind of 
fast forward uh, a month uh, to you know ten years out to really see what what has become. Um, what would you want that vision to to look like? So I think the most uh, satisfaction and excitement and general thrill that I've gotten so far is seeing folks who come back from these trips both energized as well as uh, really appreciative and excited about um, the connections that they've made. And like my day is my personally, my day is made when I go on Facebook um, and I see two people who met on one of these trips uh, talking about plans to go out and see a concert in New York city or talking about future trips that they might be planning together, just generally making connections because it's so hard these days as somebody, um, you know, I'll speak for myself, but I'm, I'm 32 and, um, you know, even living in New York city, uh, last year where I went to high school and I know so many people, you can still feel so alone in the middle of a city of a million people where you might have a thousand friends. Um, so giving people more opportunities to, to, uh, to find like-minded individuals and build those kinds of bonds and relationships because our parents, you know, they had, uh, community centers and they had synagogues and churches and neighborhood poker games and they were going to their kids soccer tournaments. And I feel like our generation and, and even, um, I mean, future generations, but really people, uh, of all ages now, um, they just don't have those, those same opportunities. And I think social media probably has a lot to do with it. Uh, just folks spending more time on screens than, um, than in real life. Um, uh, but really just trying to give folks, uh, just more chances to to really come together um, and and meet new people and and build long lasting um, really intimate bonds and relationships. Um, so that would be like that. I guess <laughs> that's kind of a a long way around to answer your question, but that's my goal. That's my focus. Like put on really epic experiences, um, bring people together around them, and um, and and create a community of of uh, right now. Um, several hundred people, but hopefully growing to uh, potentially pass that if, if we can stay um, authentic and organic to that that original mission. Absolutely. Doing things together like what you're doing with Bull Collective with others is, based on psychological research, the most powerful way to form strong connections and bonds with someone else. So I, I absolutely love it. I think that's that's amazing. Um, if you could, If you could go back and tell the 18-year-old version of yourself one piece of advice that would help you to kind of overcome some of the challenges that you've had to overcome a little bit easier. What would that advice look like? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think life is long. Um, while time is finite, we still have our 60 or 70 or maybe by the time, um, you know, I, I reach a hundred or you reach a hundred where they've, they've figured out a lot of that, uh, CRISPR and launch launch longevity stuff. But all that to say life is long. And while time is, is limited, there are chances to make mistakes and, um, there are chances to, uh, to, to bounce back from those. And I say like, you know, it's such a cliche, but why do we fall? Right. It's so that we can get back up. Um, and I've learned so much in the last five years uh, or 10 years of, of professional kind of growth and setbacks. And, um, I mean, there's, there's always more opportunities and we're living in a time, uh, of unlimited opportunity, um, where there's more access to reach people through social media. Uh, there's more opportunities to have a good idea and find the, the barest of, of, uh, of fundraising to, um, 
to, to launch something new into the world. Um, and often you, there, there just aren't gatekeepers anymore. So if you have a vision and you have uh, an idea for something that, that you truly believe in, you'll be able to, to put it in front of people and, and you'll be able to identify uh, the people who, who are going to, to support it. Um, so yeah, just always making sure to remember that if what you're doing now does not work, there is going to be another opportunity uh, to, to succeed in the future. So don't be afraid to take risks and go do something crazy, right? I've, for one, have never been afraid to, to throw myself off a cliff and find a parachute on the way down. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's always worked out, usually, right? So far, I've, I've had a couple of broken bones, but I've, I've uh, nothing that I haven't been able to recover from. So it sounds like you've done some amazing experiences through Bolt Collective, and I'm sure there are some even more incredible ones coming up in the future. What's next, and how can everyone who's interested in signing up be a part of that? So Monday, uh, I leave for for about two weeks in Iceland, and um, that's one of the countries that is perennially at the top of uh, the list of, of awesome places to go see and 100 travel destinations before you die. But um, in the past five years, it's it's really become... Uh, almost over touristed from, from, um, a lot of more in depth, uh, uh, things that I've read. So, um, a, a member suggested it as a place to go. And I was really trying to figure out how to offer some kind of unique, kind of out there experience. Um, and what we settled on was, uh, talking to about half a dozen different, um, horseback companies in Northwest Iceland. And they all offer these really traditional kind of like sleep at a ranch, go out during the day, come back. Um, and, and based like from a central location, I was like, wow, it'd be way cooler, um, if we could have a more expedition style horseback trip, um, over the course of, of five days. So, uh, they'd never honestly done that before. Um, they'd never had, uh, folks reach out that were interested in that kind of thing. Um, so in talking to, uh, six different companies, finally convinced one to, um, latch onto this crazy idea of, of more of an expedition, um, so I won't even try to, to say the name of the place we're going, but, uh, that's, that's our July experience is this horseback expedition across Northwest Iceland. Um, then August coming up, we've got, uh, we've got a trip sailing through the fjords of Norway. Um, a couple boats that are, uh, going to be sailing from Tromsø up in the North down to the Lofoten Peninsula. Uh, another example is October, um, we've got a friend of mine who, uh, owns a fleet of, of sprinter vans, um, out of Jackson hole, uh, we're having a, doing a trip down, um, meeting up in Salt Lake city, uh, with five of these sprinter vans at the airport, picking members up, um, for a treasure hunt through the Utah national parks, uh, meeting up every night for, uh, campfires and live music and bond and, uh, just hangouts at, um, at a campsite and then, uh, crowning the winner of that treasure hunt, uh, on the Vegas strip and folks really easy fly out from Vegas. So uh, the, the trips all take kind of a, a different, um, different theme and, and different, uh, like expression, but, um, yeah, all, all very much outdoors oriented, uh, and, um, uh, just an interesting way to, to see new places. Those sound awesome, Dan. So you're going to leave at least one spot for me on all those, right? Absolutely, man. Let's let's figure out a way to do it. I didn't mention Outpost, which is uh, September, and and hopefully we're going to get you guys out to do uh, to do podcasts um, live and in color from uh, from Mendocino. But um, yeah, you're you're always welcome.
Can't wait. Well, hey, maybe we can have the uh, second version of this podcast uh, live horseback from Iceland. <laughs> Let's do it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Inside the Adventure. That was the story of Dan Pearson, who, through all of the adventures he's shared, you know that he's probably gotten into some pretty interesting situations, some which he described today and some which he didn't mention, like deliriously running out of water along the southern coast and being saved by a cowboy, stowing away aboard a sailboat to the island of Cayo Largo, and... During his three weeks in Havana, he actually didn't mention that he was there trying to seduce a diplomat's daughter. To hear the rest of those stories, just sign up for one of Dan's trips through Bolt Collective and hear it straight from Dan himself. 